Welcome to Let's Talk Governance, a podcast to support regional West Australian non-for-profit groups to lead and steer their activities with high impact, confidence and compliance. The podcast is brought to you by the Grower Group Alliance and made possible with the generous support of podcast sponsor, the CBH Group. Your host is Callista Bolton of the Grower Group Alliance and our expert guest is renowned governance instructor, Peter Fitzpatrick. The Grower Group Alliance is a WA statewide network of around 60 farmer-led grower groups that are all run with volunteer committees. Established by grower groups for grower groups almost 20 years ago, today member groups extend from Kununurra in the northwest all the way down to Esperance in the southeast. Across the network, the groups have a diverse collective membership of around 4,000 farm enterprises, operating in all sectors of the agriculture industry at all different levels of scale and purpose. Hi everyone and welcome to our Let's Talk Governance podcast. My name is Callista Bolton. I work with the Grower Group Alliance in the role of Stakeholder and Communications Manager. Let me introduce our guest governance expert, Peter Fitzpatrick, who will be delivering all the technical content for this six-episode series. Peter is a well-known West Australian governance instructor. Peter has quite the resume, but for the context of this podcast, let's focus on his governance work. Peter is a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and has an advanced diploma in company directorship. He is currently a director of six boards and chairperson of four, which are a mix of for-profit and not-for-profit organisations. Peter is currently a teaching instructor for the Australian Institute of Company Directors course and consults privately, offering governance, consulting and training workshops. Well, welcome, Peter. We are at the end, episode six. How are we rounding up our crash course in governance training today? It sounds like a serial on the ABC or something, doesn't it? <laughs> Episode six of Days of Your Lives, whatever. Uh, um, uh, days of Your Governance. Um, well, yeah, we're now going to deal with financial responsibilities and performance, um, uh, which is uh, a topic that some, sometimes sends a, a sort of a hint of fear into people who are not, uh, not, not well-trained in financial things. So I think the first thing we'll... We'll look at, if I can start off with a question to myself, I suppose, what are the statutory financial responsibilities of a not-for-profit board? Look, before I, I do that, I might just cover off on the, uh, the need for people to be financially literate as directors. I think you, as directors, you need to know the basics of this. You don't have to be an accountant. Uh, but what are the financial responsibilities of directors? What are the different uh, statements, financial statements or books of account as they used to be called uh, and how do boards need to monitor financial performance they're the sort of areas we're going to cover in this segment uh, this is normally the area of greater weakness in in not-for-profit boards there's normally fewer people with financial skills than you find in for-profit boards that's my experience but you have to be really blunt about this and say you can't be an effective director and say you're financially illiterate. You, you have to actually go and do some training or do some reading on it, um, uh, get somebody to help you with uh, understanding it, whether it's the EO or your friendly neighbourhood accountant who can spend some time explaining things to you. Uh, you just need to be a good detective to know what you're looking for. But above all, don't be fearful of it. Uh, just make time to do the learning. It's like a lot of things. You've got to learn things. 
and it's critical that you learn how to uh, actually read financial accounts so that you can be involved then in monitoring financial performance. There's some great quotes on this. Uh, Robert Kiyosaki, who wrote the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad, many people have probably read, says financial freedom is freedom from fear, which I think is a great quote. And then Warren Buffett, this was probably just as appropriate to risk as risk comes from not knowing what you're doing and that can apply very much to financial. Yeah, you can have sure. a financial risk. Uh, and then a guy called Tony Rawlings who's written a number of books in this area. Directors have got to have a clear understanding of the business and what can go wrong. It's not just about processes and procedures. Reliance on poor control can be worse than having no control at all. So you've got to have the right uh, control mechanisms in place for dealing with financial if you've uh, if you've got the wrong ones in place you that that can make problems for you as well so what are the main areas that uh, that we need to look at here there's four areas really uh, and I call them the statutory obligations or the uh, I call them the quadrants another the financial quadrants another term that I use the first one is you, you've got to maintain that a board has to maintain the proper what they call the books of account, but it's really all the proper statements, and that these are in accordance with Australian accounting standards. Your auditors and accountants and other people can help you with that, but maintaining and keeping these records is one of the four statutory obligations you have. The next one is you must monitor, as well as knowing what these different parts of the finances are, you must monitor financial performance and the position of the organisation. So each meeting you should be getting a set of accounts coming your way, which will have a balance sheet, an income statement, a cash flow statement, those sort of things. You've got to be able to monitor those and as a detective look for things that don't quite look right, uh, that are going up when they should be going down or down when they should be going up. The next one is to meet your financial reporting obligations. We covered this off in the, uh, in the very first segment and we might just reiterate it again towards the end of this one, which was what do you do at the end of your financial year? Uh, do you take all your accounts, your audited accounts or your accounts that have been reviewed by somebody to your members and then you send them off to the regulatory body that you're responsible for, whether it's the local state government department or Australian Securities Investment Committee, if you're at, or, uh, commission rather, if you are a large not-for-profit and you're trading, say, as a company limited by guarantee. And then the final uh, statutory obligation that you have uh, is to prevent trading whilst insolvent. So you've got to be absolutely sure that you uh, can, as the the test for insolvency is that you can meet your debts as and when they occur. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that, that's a very critical role. The cardinal sin of being a director is to trade whilst insolvent, and it can certainly uh, draw the wrath of the regulators uh, down upon you if you do that. So I think the main uh, things about this are know the purpose of the main financial statements and the links between them, uh, be clear about uh, your director's duties in terms of not-for-profit finances and financial reporting. Uh, understand the basics of how do you evaluate whether an organisation is uh, is performing well or not performing well. 
and be really clear about your director's duties in relation to solvency. Yeah, it's pretty serious stuff. To find your local grower group, head to the Grower Group Alliance website, gga.org.au. While you're there, subscribe to the GGA newsletter and be sure to stay up to date with the activities and opportunities from the 60-plus groups around WA that make up the vibrant and diverse Grower Group Alliance network. So what, what are the main financial statements and how are they linked? Well, it all starts with a budget and a budget rather than something that you just sort of uh, sit there and stare at a wall and say, well, what are we going to do next year? It, it all it should be linked across to your strategy and from the strategy, you should be able to develop a business plan. So each year, your, your budget will vary according to what strategic objectives you've set and how you've laid out the costs and responsibilities in a business plan. So your strategic plan is a, is a good starting point and then a business plan that talks about who's responsible, how much it's going to cost, when the money's going to be needed and so on. So you need to set those expectations of the start of the year, of your financial year, uh, if that happens to be the normal one, which is July to June, then you should have a budget in place, probably approved by the board, no later than May each year so mm. that it can be started off on the 1st of July. Establish who's responsible for making uh, this work. Uh, is it management accountability? Uh, is it management reporting to a, a finance and audit and risk committee? When you're preparing a budget or when you're, when you're uh, approving a budget at board level, always make sure that you interrogate the budget assumptions. Why are we spending more on this and less on that? Why are we not going to make as much money next year from doing this uh, when we made more last year? What are the assumptions that underpin that? Uh, the other thing that uh, I tend to do with a lot of organisations, things don't always go according to plan. They either go better or worse than what you anticipated. Uh, review and reforecast your budget during the year. Normally after six months, how are we going? And do a budget reforecast if you think that's necessary. The financial statements or the books of account, which are the old terminology because things are all, we don't have books of account anymore, it's all electronic, but that's the term that's still used in the, in the acts and in some of the uh, regulatory documents. As the balance sheet, uh, and I'll cover off each of these the income statement, which used to be called the old profit and loss. Some people still call it profit and loss. There's a statement of cash flows, which determines how cash flows through the business. And the final one, which not many not-for-profits will use, is called a statement of changes in equity. And this is where you have revaluation of buildings or property or major things where uh, you have to adjust either the uh, the valuation of assets up and down. Uh, that would only be done once a year and a lot of small not-for-profits that don't own a lot of property or assets would never have to do that one. So let me talk first of all, uh, after the budget, when you've got your budget, and this is how uh, you see that the income and expenses for the year, the income statement or the profit and loss statement should be written up in such a way so that month by month and on a yearly basis, you can compare how you're going according to your budget. So the income statement will have income this month, budget, and then uh, variance. This year, to date, budget, variance. And you can track each month how well you're going and if you're starting to get behind. So the income statement or the profit and loss talks about revenue or income, which is money coming in, expenses going out, 
and then you will either finish up at the end of that with either a surplus, which is a, or a profit, or a deficit. In other words, you, you're losing money as you go along. You're, lo- you're not making profit uh, with the business. And that's when, if you start, n- I would never have a deficit budget to set the year off. Always find a way of making the budget mm. fit. But having a deficit budget, I think, is to me in a not-for-profit is a traje- dangerous. Trajectory for disaster. Yes. <laughs> Unless you've got a huge balance sheet and you're trying to, to sort of uh, draw that down rather than having a balance sheet that's not doing much. So let's look at the balance sheet. The balance sheet's what you owe and own. Anybody who's got a farm or a business will know they've got assets, they've got liabilities, and the difference between that is what equity or what you own. And the balance sheet is no more than that. Uh, you have current and non-current assets. Those are terms that are not are difficult to explain. A current asset is anything that can be is either cash or could be reduced to cash within a 12-month period. Non-current is the longer-term assets like buildings and so on. Um, you have current and non-current liabilities. These are uh, current liabilities are things that you that you need to be able to fund within the next 12 months. Non-current are things that you uh, you may not like like a borrowing and so on again. And then that will finish up with equity or sometimes it's referred as members' funds. So what you own versus what you owe or what you, you, you're committed to, the, the deduction away from that then is equity or members' funds. And that's so you should have, that should be in a positive, that you've actually got a balance sheet that, or you're actually worth something that you can draw on. You'll have reserves possibly in there and other things that will enable you to do it. When it comes to statement of cash flows, um, this is pretty simple. It's basically cash flows in and cash out for your operating activities. That's the day-to-day operating activities. Then you add or subtract that from cash flows used for investing activities if you've invested in properties. And then cash flow used in financing activities, in other words, if you've had to finance the organisation to keep going. And that will tell you at a given point in time whether you're using more cash than you should be or you're actually cash positive. Because cash is really important. Uh, I always say that revenue is important. In other words, the amount of income you're getting coming in is important. Profit's really important because for what you're getting, you should be making a profit. But then if you're actually negative cash flow, then you're going to be in serious trouble because if you run out of cash, even Mm. if you're making a profit, you're going to be in trouble. The thing that I like to, to do in a lot of not-for-profits, and you can get these in most accounting packages, is rather than a cash flow statement, let's say we have a cash flow statement as at today's date, and that will tell you whether cash is flowing, whether it's negative or positive, you can do a cash flow forecast which will map out 12 months ahead of you yeah. where the key bits of cash are going to go in and going to go out. Uh, I know some organisations that have a 24 month rolling forecast. So they're looking two years down the track at what the sort of... Now, some of those getting out the end of that, that might be a little bit sort of uh, uh, maybe not as uh, clear as it could be, but you can keep adjusting as, as circumstances change. So it's an estimate of amount of cash expected to flow in and out of a business. It includes projected income and expenses. And if, so if you know if you've got insurance occurs every year in December, you put it in there and so on. It can cover, as I said, 12 months or even up to 24 months. It provides some certainty because you can look forward because as you feed in the actuals each month in your accounting package, it will adjust what 
the cash in the business is going to look like going forward. So you can look and say in January next year we could be running out of money unless we do something. So we've got to, got to make an adjustment. And it also makes sure that employees and suppliers can be paid because uh, uh, you don't want to be in a position where uh, you, you run out of money to fulfil those important obligations. It's also a good indication too is whether you're starting to fall behind in paying your bills uh, or whether you're falling behind in getting money in for people who owe you money. Excellent. So um, in terms of the insolvency, what are, what are some of the warning signs? Yeah, well, there's, there's a few of them and I'm always on my guard. I'm always looking at organisations, particularly new organisations when you're not familiar with how the ebb and flow of money going through the business is going to work or you quite often things you've budgeted for are more expensive than what you thought they might be. So these are these are my little tips for looking for cash flow problems. In other words, you in your cash flow statement I mentioned earlier, you've got negative cash flow through the business. We're still making a profit, but we're running out of cash. Um, what's going on here? And that profit and cash are quite different. So cash flow problems or your cash flow forecaster saying, we're going to have a problem if we keep going this way because it's evident that we're going to run out of cash in six months' time, so we need to be able to do something about that. Staff turnover is always potential, particularly if you start to see the finance staff or the bookkeeper or somebody else like that wanting to leave the organisation and you've noticed that there are some cash flow problems. I always say, mm, what's going on here? Um, it may be... Maybe something innocent, but it may be that the uh, this is an early warning sign that things may not all be okay. You look for significant variances from the budget, uh, and that each month in your income statement, this month budget variance, this year budget variance, and you're checking that. And if there's big variances there, in other words, we're supposed to have collected ten thousand dollars this month. We only got four, and we're six thousand down. Why is that? Yeah, so? that has the potential to derail. Yep, late or non-existent financial reports—that's always a trigger uh, for me. If the reports are, you're getting them the day before a meeting, or they they don't turn up at a meeting, uh, I really start to get anxious, and I I don't accept that. Um, uh, and if I'm the chair of a board, I'll be having the CEO, and I'd be having a very serious conversation about the, the lack of financial accountability going through the organisation. So it doesn't matter how busy people are, you need to have finances up there front and centre on your agenda yeah, each board meeting. compromises everybody on the committee it if sure you don't does. have that info. And if they turn up the day before and you haven't got time to look at it, what? Are, so is it that inefficient in the place? If they're that inefficient, is that the sign, the sign of a much bigger problem, and yeah. it could well be. You're not giving people the opportunity to cast their eyes over what's going no, on for people no. to spot, yep. the, you know, issues. But it does report to it does support a, a proposition of inefficiency as well, which means that could be problems. A decrease in service delivery is another thing. If you're providing services to members and they're not getting all of that, is there something going on? Are we are we having a solvency problem where we've had to cut back on the things that? If members start to complain, what happened to this and why aren't we getting this anymore, then that's another sign to say, well, is there a problem here with, with funding? Is, are we running out of cash again? Is there a solvency issue? Late payment for creditors. Uh, the local supplier calls you up and says, you know, you haven't paid your bill for four months. Uh, what's going on? That's always another sign that you should be wary that uh, we're, we're running out of money. Um, 
And the other one is difficulty meeting debt repayments. You don't want to be having a, a friendly conversation with your bank about why you aren't meeting debt repayments. So they're, they're normally my sons. The other one I'd just I'd throw in for uh, is just experience that I've had is keep an eye out for any signs that you think might be potential fraud in a business. And one of the most common areas of fraud is credit cards. Who's managing the credit card? If the EO's got a credit card, is the chair signing off on that each month for the expenses? Is the EO, if there are credit cards within the organisation, uh, is the EO checking the receipts and everything else for those credit cards each month? Credit cards are, in many, many cases, many court cases about this, are a fertile ground for people to commit fraud. But look for other ways as well. If things are really not going well, and they should be going well, there is a potential that there could be fraud within an organisation. And normally, the experience I get just about every time, it was this person was the least person I expected to actually uh, to be fraudulent in the organisation. So you just have to be you just have to be very careful to watch for any signs that might give any indication there's fraud going on. And we've seen some incredible examples of this in the newspapers almost every day of massive fraud sometimes in government departments and in companies where this has occurred. So, yeah, that's a good checklist of basic warning signs that um, anybody could see, even if they're not reading the financial statements. Some of those are, are quite obvious. Owned and controlled by around 3,800 WA grain growing businesses, CBH Group is proud to be actively involved with and supportive of the communities we operate in. We do this through our Community Investment Fund, and a large part of this fund is committed to building leadership capacity in our regional communities. We support and deliver programs that build strength, resilience, knowledge, and skills for future industry leaders to work towards a sustainable and profitable grain growing industry. For more info, head to cbh.com.au forward slash scholarships. Moving on, uh, what are the key requirements for analysing financial performance? Okay, so as I said before, you don't need to be an accountant, but you need to be the detective here. So the first thing I'd say is you need to have a good understanding because all these things are linked up, as I said earlier, between revenue, in other words, money coming in, expenses, money going out, which is going to be on your income statement, the profit or loss, which is the, the end total of that, Assets and liabilities, which are on your uh, in your balance sheet, and and equity, what what you've actually what the organisation's worth, or members' funds. So you need to understand the relationship between all of those. I think to help you analyse financial performance, because there are links between them. There are things if you get a grant early and you're not like no, don't need to expend it till next financial year, that will appear on your balance sheet as a non, non-used income or something like that because you, you're not putting it into your profit and loss until it's actually needed for when you start doing it. So there's a link there to say, well, didn't we get 300000 from the government? Yes, it's on the balance sheet, but we'll bring it forward and put it into the profit and loss next year when we have to use it. Uh, looking at trends in profits, uh, looking at trends in equity, when you get your balance sheet, you should have this month, last month, if there's a sudden decline or... There's a sudden upsurge. How has that come about? Why, why has that occurred? You've got to look at the organisation's uh, position, financial position, 
and compared to other organisations, there are such things as benchmarking that you can look at for a not-for-profit organisation of such a, such a size. You can find benchmarking tools that are available on the web or organisations that will, will provide you with that sort of stuff. So compare yourself with other organisations. Uh, I do it a lot in uh, some of my other companies. Uh, I use benchmarking tools and I can drive a, an EO or managing director mad by saying, well, why are we spending more on this than other companies of a similar size? So I'm constantly looking at that as a measuring tool. Understanding your SWOT due to strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats as they relate to financial performance. Is there What are the strengths of the organisation? Are there weaknesses in our financial? Are there opportunities for making more money? What are the threats where, where we could actually lose money in, in a significant way? Uh, looking at past performance, so you can develop targets, budgets and so on. When I do budgets, I try and do a three or four or sometimes a five-year window, so have them all lined up in a, in a spreadsheet or a, uh, something that's, that's easy to follow where you have the past five years of income in a certain area and you can look at it. So when you decide your budget for the next year, you can look at what the track record yeah. has been. What, is, what have we spent on this uh, in the past? Yeah, in the past. What have we made in the past with this and if there's any variations there. The other thing I, I like to use are graphs. Graphs are great. One of the, the big uh, for-profit companies that I, I was the chair of, we use graphs everywhere. Um, one was a big national company. And I used to go to the graphs first and the graphs, it could be pie charts or they can be the Manhattans, you know, the ones that look like the skyscrapers. And, and you can run a graph that's a, a Manhattan with another one that's tracking across the middle of it so you can compare one thing against another and so on. But graphs where your income's coming from, graphs on profit and so on. Graphs are a great way of being able to track financial performance if, the, if there's significant variations. So I guess the summary I'd say on that is look for variations. This is your detective bit. Look at timing and other issues. So if you've got money for grants early, uh, what's the timing for that? Put it on the balance sheet until you have to use it. The use of financial ratios, I don't have time to spend much on that, but these are little mathematical mm. calculations where you, uh, uh, you you can check liquidity, in other words, whether you how you're going in terms of solvency operational performance and other things. And you have four or five of those, maybe even key performance indicators relating to finance. These are these are dashboards that you need that can help you. Look at the items that are causing trends. What, what's actually causing this trend? Why are we suddenly losing money here and so on? Drawing conclusions from that and asking questions all the time. And the key uh, performance indicators that you might often have to help you with this uh, tracking it is you could actually have a key performance uh, indicator around income received by category, for example, as to what you actually want. Achievement of a desired surplus, a key performance indicator, we're going to increase our surplus or profit by 10% or 20%, whatever, next year. Management and staff, staff turnover and, and length of service, these can have financial implications because it costs money to bring yeah, in new people. Sure. Operations. And you, have, you have the downtime of the... Yeah. Um, Yep. Proficiency and sure, and then operations brand recognition is a driver of donations that can have a fun. How well do people know your brand? Is it mm. a, is it a strong brand? Uh, membership numbers as a driver of say subscription income. 
These are some of the things that you can have as key performance indicators, as little dashboards to yeah. help you monitor financial performance. Yes, yeah, so it's not just about reading your balance sheet and your P&L. It's all these a mixture of dashboard indicators for Correct. for observing yes. and monitoring the financial health. Yes, and everybody needs to be comfortable with how to how to interpret those and and get involved and across it. Yes. So. Uh, finally, what are the financial reporting obligations of a not-for-profit organisation? Well, we covered this off to a large extent mm. in an earlier segment, but it might just be worth just going through it very quickly, just some of the, the key elements of it. Uh, if you're an incorporated association, and as I said from the outset, don't belong to an unincorporated one because you can be personally liable for all the issues that occur. In Western Australia, uh, there's an association section within the Department, Mines, Industry and Regulation and Safety. And so you just need to ask for the association's section or area and you can you can uh, talk to people there about it. it uh, but you have to report to them um, immediately after your AGM but within six months of the end of your financial year. So it normally means by late November, late December, you're starting to put your reports into uh, this area. If you're a, uh, a larger not-for-profit or you're across uh, state boundaries and you're a company limited by guarantee, which is another form of not-for-profit, then you have to report to the Australian Securities and Investment Commission. So you have to put in the reports that they ask for. Or if you're a charity, you might be reporting to the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission, which is under the ACNC Act. So... It depends what type of incorporation you have as to where you actually report. So if you're under the Western Australian Associations Incorporations Act and you're reporting to that department that I mentioned a moment ago and your revenue is less than $250,000, that's a tier one, they call you, uh, within six months of the end of the financial year, you've got to put in a statement of your income and expenditure, your balance sheet, and have your accounts either reviewed by someone competent or unaudited. Uh, sometimes your constitution might require you to audit. If, you, if it doesn't, uh, having them reviewed would suffice for the regulator. Tier two is revenue between $250,000 and $1 million a year, if that's how much money you're dragging in. Uh, your financial statements for the association, once again, within six months of the end of the financial year, also can be reviewed or audited uh, and a copy of that review or auditor's report needs to go in. And tier three, which is over a million dollars in revenue coming in, full financial report with notes to your accounts. You've got to comply with the Australian accounting standards and you have to be audited and you have to actually include a full audit report. And then under the ACNC Act, if you're a charity they have very similar. They have the same tiers, up to two fifty thousand, two fifty thousand to one million, and so on. There is something that I just wanted to mention. I, I, I think I've covered enough of that from what we've covered previously. But it's important people do understand and know what, those obligations. What tiers they're in as well. So yes, and what yeah. tier they're yeah. in. Uh, one of the things I should have mentioned, perhaps, when I was talking about solvency, is there is. Um, uh, you know, a safe harbour provision, which is new legislation that's been brought in by the federal government. And what do we mean by safe harbour? 
Well, what used to happen in the past is people would bail out, I suppose, if they thought the organisation wasn't going very well. So they'd say, let's bring in the, the, the receiver managers or we'll, uh, we'll declare ourselves you know, uh, insolvent. Uh, and quite often the, the organisation was just going through a rough patch and there may be things that could be done to fix it. So directors can, can actually be protected under the safe harbour legislation if they implement one or more courses of action that are reasonably likely to lead to a better outcome for the organisation. So if you have a plan and you adopt and you think you've got a chance of fixing this, then uh, the government didn't want people to say, well, as a director, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble if I'm insolvent. As long as it's reasonable and you've got a plan that you can actually take the organisation forward for, for a better outcome than just going insolvent then you can invoke the safe harbour provisions. So that's something that you probably would get some advice on, uh, but it is another option for you. That's, that's, that's good to know, um, you know, for organisations that may have had a slip-up and, um, you know, they're, they're met with a big um, extraordinary yes. expense yes. that wasn't in their cash flow um, to explore those options. I've got a great quote I'd like to finish all these segments on, if I could, and it's from Theodore Roosevelt, the US President. And this was in a, oh, it was about a 14-page speech that he gave to the university in Fontainebleau in France. But I think it describes what it's like to be a not-for-profit director, uh, particularly in a regional area. And this is what he said. It's a little bit long, but it's, it's, I think it's worth hearing. It's not the critic that counts, not those who point out how the strong stumble or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to those who are actually in the arena, whose faces are marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strive valiantly, who err and come up short again and again, because there is no effect without error or shortcoming, but who know the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, can spend themselves on a worthy cause, who at the best know in the end the triumph of high achievement, who at worst if they fail, at least they fail while daring greatly, so that their place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Excellent. So I think, and that describes to me people who are not-for-profits director, directors, particularly, or all directors, I suppose. You're in the arena. You're, you're, you're there in the, uh, with the sweat and the dust and everything else. Uh, and there will always be people who sit on the side who want to criticise or tell you there's a better way of doing it. I think you just got to focus on, and, and you will come up short every now and again. Uh, you won't achieve everything you want to, but at least you're in there having a go. And I think that's the critical thing, because the great leaders of this nation are the people who sit on boards. You know, the not-for-profits that actually help their communities, that look after people who are who are needy and, and need support, or simply providing uh, profitable companies where people can use their dividends to pay their school fees and go to university or private companies that are actually employing people and uh, being able to produce profitable businesses. That's where the real leadership of the country comes. Mm. Uh, you know, politicians try to lead. I think they often get in the way. But, uh, but the real leaders, the true leaders of the nation are the people who are sitting on boards and making things happen. Hence Theodore Roosevelt, I think, the people in the arena are the ones that really count. Yeah, the people that are stepping forward to make a difference in their community. Is your event visible? 
Attract traffic to your agricultural industry event by featuring it in the GGA statewide events calendar. Circulated fortnightly, the Grower Group Alliance calendar is the most comprehensive calendar for the Western Australian agricultural industry. Featuring your event is free. Head to the Grower Group Alliance webpage to subscribe. ggA.org.au. Let's take um, a question that's um, come from the network in relation, sort of themed along the financial lines. Is there a way that not-for-profits can retain their values and independence if they are quasi-statutory or government-funded? Well, I would always hold my values, (laughs) Um, uh, and it depends to a certain extent I would never sell my soul simply for 30 pieces of silver, put it that way. So what if you're a not-for-profit organisation, you will have objectives uh, that sit right at the front of your constitution. What are you there for? A- and make sure that you are true to those objectives. And the objectives will talk about your providing services to farming communities, whatever it is that you're doing. So don't get taken away from the, your original purposes. Don't compromise your values. Uh, because of a source of money. If there's a complete change of direction, uh, then hopefully you know, government funding may not impact, but if it does, then you need to have serious thoughts about can we, can we provide the value and do what we're supposed to do under our constitution if government is insisting on us going down an entirely different path, which is not consistent with that. If you're a quasi-statutory body, well, that becomes a bit more difficult because quite often, I don't, quasi-statutory is interesting. You're either statutory or not in some ways. You've either got some, you've either got some statutory basis for whether it's a regulation or something that's there that defines your existence. You need to see what that statute says. So if you're a statute, partly statutory or government-funded uh, organisation, you really have to do what the statute or the Act says you have to do. So... Uh, even though you're not for profit, you need to try and build values around that. But your ultimate, in addition to your constitution, a thing that would override your constitution would be that any statute or act that defines what your purpose is. Very difficult. I've chaired government boards. I find them frustrating because you might come up with the best business decision or best operational decision, only to find that the political imperative is something different. And so you can get compromised and... Uh, and you need to make decisions about whether you're prepared to accept those compromises for the. So, yeah, it's not easy, but uh, uh, stay true to your path as best you can and don't get compromised. So another area that the committee needs to be mindful. All right, one last question. Um, again, in relation to sort of finances, I suppose, um, what is the correct process for members of an organisation to be paid for work within the organisation of which they are a member? Yeah, it's possible, but tread warily. Yeah. <laughs> if, uh, if somebody is going to be asked to do work as a director, then it needs to be a clear board decision. Uh, the person who's going to do the work should not be involved in the decision. Um, so there's a conflict of interest immediately. We need to be sure that there is a proper selection process. If it's a big sum of money, there should be a tender and people submit tenders for it. It's, uh, if it's a small one, there should be, well, who else could provide this service? Let's get three quotes sort of thing um, to make sure that, uh, that, there's, no, that there's no sort of uh, 
intention to defraud the organisation by paying a director in a backhand way or something like that. It's a bit of a dangerous path to go down, but sometimes in small communities it's the only way you can go because you, you've only got one person with those skills who could actually do the work for you. Uh, and it can lead to issues with your membership because they say, oh, they only joined that board so they can make money out of it. Those sort of comments will come. So you need to be transparent about it and you need to define the process you've used to arrive at it so that your members and everybody else know exactly what you've done. But if you try and do it in an underhand way and someone finds out about it, well, we talked about reputational risk earlier. That can have a severe impact on it. So, yes, it is possible. Tread warily. Go through a proper process to make sure that it's done correctly. Yeah, and just be transparent about it all. Mm. Excellent. Well, we've reached the end of our series, um, six episodes. Uh, I hope uh, I've certainly got a lot out of it and um, having sat through your governance one-day workshops that you you um, provide to the Grow Group Alliance, it's a great refresher. So for anybody that have, has done those uh, workshops before, maybe a few years ago or even recently this year, I hope uh, that they see the, the podcast as a great um, refresher uh, to come back to again and again. And um, certainly for anybody that hasn't sat through any governance training before, this is a this is a great um, introduction. They're designed to be listened to from start to finish all episodes, not just one or two, picking them out so that um, the whole picture will be pieced together. So, um, and of course, the so so accessible being um, on a recording. So, if you're on a tractor, or uh, you know, in your car commuting, um, this is a great way to digest a bit of governance um, instruction. So, did did you want to have? Do you have anything else to add? For, no, no. I hope I hope it's been interesting enough. I don't want them driving off the road listening to my <laughs> voice. Um, so, I hope it's been. Uh, I hope it. I, I've covered. And I've covered a huge amount in a very short space of time with these things, as you're well aware. You know, we've covered the best part of a, at least a day of governance training, and in some parts we've covered a whole day yeah. uh, in, in 15 to 20 minutes. So it's uh, there's a lot of information there and it's all packaged in. But unpick it bit by bit, listen to the parts that you think you need to go over. There may be some parts there that you're quite familiar with, so you, you, may, you may find that you don't have to listen as, as much to that as the ones that you're you think might be more helpful to you or areas where you believe you need to upskill. Well, thank you very much, Peter, for being our guest expert in our very first ever series of Let's Talk Governance. Yeah, so it's been, it's been a, a great experience and I hope it helps out there. Thanks, Peter. We hope you've enjoyed the content in this episode of the Let's Talk Governance podcast. Resources around governance for grower groups, including where to connect with guest expert Peter Fitzpatrick, can be found on the Grower Group Alliance website at gga.org.au. Before we go, one final acknowledgement to our podcast sponsor, the CBH Group, who have been right behind this new way of making governance guidance really accessible to the Grower Group Alliance network and any other not-for-profit stakeholder groups tuning in.